Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses World with the World War II gave us writing for Godot and Oklahoma. Without the arts, we are diminished. We had the kind of creative freedom. I was, I was on television as a child, and then I had I was in Cotty's happy hour. She leaned across to me and she said, one day, you know, you'll be doing that. Mind-boggling. They were even lined with purple leather. Uh, went to the ABC and audition. I was so fit at the end of that, you could have ended me in the Melbourne Cup. I, and I still firmly believe that great work can be made in small places. If nobody's going to respect your talent, you've got to respect it. I hope I've been entertaining, that's all. Well, that's very kind of you, Peter. But you are a friend. And <laughs> <laughs> as are you. Yeah, it's a date. <laughs> it's a date. Hi there. I'm Peter Ayers and welcome to this episode of Stages. The founding CEO of the Darlinghurst Theatre Company in Sydney recently announced his intention to retire at the beginning of 2022. His career as a quiet achiever in the independent sector has seen significant contribution to the arts life of New South Wales and a social quest to make the arts as accessible for all as possible. Inclusion has been a hallmark of Glenn Terry's work since the 1992 establishment of Darlow Drama, an acting school for adults of all ages and from all walks of life. Glenn founded Milk Crate Theatre, which uh, is this year celebrating 21 years of theatre making, specifically by and with people who have lived experiences of homelessness, mental health issues and disability. In 2005, Glenn established Critical Stages, touring to deliver outstanding independent productions to every corner of the nation. And in 2009, after many years of lobbying for a large space, the City of Sydney invited Glenn to collaborate on the design and construction of the 200-seat Eternity Playhouse, which became the home of Darlinghurst Theatre Company in 2013, following their residence at the Reginald Murphy Hall, now the home of the Hayes Theatre Company. Few people can claim to have given a city two brand new theatres and founded four unique performing arts organisations that continue to thrive. It was Stage's pleasure to sit down and discuss all of the above with Glenn Terry. You're in the mountains, aren't you? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Mm. You're getting your rain today? It's raining here in Sydney. Yeah, a little bit. It's not too bad. Yeah, it's quite, it's really pretty. We, I mean, the rain up here just is delightful compared to Sydney, where it's just depressive and <laughs> annoying. I'm sure even the snow's delightful in the mountains. Ah, yeah, we had a good good um, drop in um, some months ago up in Blackheath and I took the kids up and fully expecting it to be a bit, you know, kind of thin on the ground, but it was great. It was, you know, kind of European. Excellent, yeah. excellent. Well, Glenn Terry, after 30 years at the helm of Darlinghurst Theatre Company, almost 30 years, and navigating a pandemic, I guess it's time for a rest. Um, yeah, look, I'm a bit of a sort of Everest person and um, I've been waiting for the, we kind of put together the final sort of, well, for me, you know, the final mechanics of how the theatre would work going forward, you know, a range of commercial work and uh, non-commercial work. And for me, kind of, you know, my work was feeling pretty done and I don't, um, you know, I do, I, I do like, the putting together and making of something, but the ongoing running and management is something, yeah, I'm not so keen on. 
not so keen on, you know, um, I am an arts manager, but that's not, you know, that that hasn't been my focus in uh, in my time. It's been a lot about building stuff and, you know, that impossible thing to do and trying to overcome that. And, you know, that that's that's been my interest. And, and in some ways the kind of professional model for the theatre was done, except COVID got in the road, so I'm just writing that out. So once we get through COVID for that to, um, you know, and to, it's been a, an amount of trying to find someone to hand it over to who really gets the mission, the message, all that stuff around inclusion and um, which have been, you know, that, that kind of artist-driven model where people come to us with projects and we get on board and so on. So in, in, in Amelia Harris, uh, 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 who turned up in, in 2015 with us, started working with, she's, she's fantastic and really gets it. So I feel good about that kind of, um, you know, leaving the building and leaving it with her. You've been sharing the role of artistic director with Amelia um, and some restructuring recently when you announced your retirement taking place uh, in early 2022. Congratulations. Uh, you will now stay on board. Amelia will assume the role of artistic director and you will be executive director until you see your, your time through. Yeah? That's it, yeah. Just to, um, you know, just to run the business end and tidy up the loose ends and get us out of COVID and into you know, brighter times and, um, yeah, to, I mean, it's around March-ish is my, my sort of rough date, rough time frame for, you know, leaving the building. I don't expect you'll stay idle for too long, though. What, what are your plans? So <laughs> you're going to have a good holiday, but I'm, I'm sure we'll see you creep back in some way as a theatre maker, Yeah. I don't know. Um, I'll be 60 next year and uh, I want to spend a lot more time with the kids and theatre's just so unfriendly for family life. Uh, And, yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure. I was a musician by training. I studied at the conservatorium and was a guitarist for, you know, a long time. I was a professional guitarist and... um, I, I really enjoyed teaching, so I might go back to a bit of um, music teaching, maybe. I, I'm not sure. I'm unsure. Yeah. The world's your oyster. In terms of theatre, again, you know, I think I've done my time. I think I'm really ready for the, you know, it's such a neurotic ride. Uh, it's it's a really tricky, tricky business and, uh, you know, it's it's a really it's a really tough gig and it, it just takes a you know it just takes every sort of ounce of your mental energy and time and particularly when you're running a company it's 24/7 and there's always fires you know issues and problems and things to sort so I think I'm not going to miss that side of it. <laughs> <laughs> so, Glenn, what's the place of a theatre company in society? What is, what is their role and, and what should they do? Mm. Um, well, I've always, you know, I've always had that kind of, I've always liked working very directly with artists because artists are at that kind of cold face of thinking exactly about the world and, and thinking about the, um, the world in all sorts of, you know, th- through their own lens and also, you know, being critical of the world and um, 
also, you know, dissecting aspects of society and life. And, um, you know, theatre always attracted me for that because it was, there was always some thesis going on behind the sort of work that, you know, particularly I used to like, I, I, I like getting involved with, but artists were always, you know, um, thinking about that. So I think the place of a theatre company um it is to is to look at the world reflect it and explore it in in some shape or form and that that needn't be completely earnest it can be you know done in a, in a very you know in an entertainment and it should be in some shape or form entertainment um framework uh to really subversive stuff so yeah i've got a really broad range um of, you know, again, I was always opening the door and just asking, you know, what have you got? If you know, you know, James Dean, that famous line, what have you, what is it you're rebelling against? And he says to the, I can't remember if it was a cop or it wasn't a cop, it was just sort of, what, are you, what is it you're rebelling against, you know, kind of young man or person, you know, and he just, and he says, well, what do you got? You know, and that that that's what I think the theatre needs to be constantly adjusting and going. Okay, well, what's what's on the table now? And I think, like the recent Black Lives Matter, you know, slamming down on the table. Come on, change and responding to those sorts of things, or um, uh, gender parity, or in the really early days, you know, there were we. Um, our theatre, we were based at the Wayside Chapel, the very first incarnation, and there were, you know, obviously homeless people. So how do we respond to that? It's just right in front of us. And um, and yeah, so, yeah, we've just, well, I personally have always, you know, what what's our, what is our responsibility? What's our role? What should we be doing? And often artists tell you, you know, this is where we're up to. This is where we need to be going. Well, inclusion has certainly been a hallmark of, of your good work over the decades, whether it be Milk Crate Theatre Company, Darlow Drama, Critical Stages, or indeed the, the Darlinghurst Theatre Company, all of which we'll, we'll touch on through this conversation. They're all um, vital theatrical institutions which explore our humanity. Um, I'd say mm -hmm. that a, a good deal of negotiative and political skills are required on your part to... Uh, bring all of those institutions to fruition oh absolutely i mean it's it's a, a theater is highly collaborative that's what i liked about it i was a originally i was a um a classical guitarist and you spend all your time at home working on your concert which is going to be in four months time playing by yourself collaborating with nobody and i just couldn't live my life like that and i mean it's that sort of existence even just as a musician it was fairly myopic so but the, 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 my first production, just I fell in love with the whole kind of crazy collaborative thing and the idea of um, bringing a whole bunch of people together, focusing to generate something, you know, for, for under under the one banner, under the one cause and driving that forward. And, yeah, I, mean, I, 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 I love that. No, that, that, um, that, that. That collaboration was um, really important. Sorry, I got off the track there. What was the question again, Per? <laughs> are you a good are you a good negotiator? Are you, are you a good oh. politician? Uh when I have to, yeah, definitely. Look, I, I think absolutely. So um fortunately, a lot of the things I've wanted to do, there's been an alignment of stars and 
it's it has come together. So um, also looking for the window of opportunity to jump through, and it can be very narrow sometimes where you see that that window of opportunity. And for instance, the you know what's now called the Hayes Theatre, that venue was. Um, you know, the window of opportunity there was that the Wayside Theatre was condemned. That's where originally we were at in the in the early 90s. And um, a councillor at the time came to us uh, from South Sydney Council and they were, they were under a lot of scrutiny from the locals who hated them because they were, you know, constantly being seen to be in bed with developers. And they were... <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> always approving these monstrosities around town. So they thought, oh, here's a theatre company in trouble, needs a venue, and they helped us. The, the, the South Sydney Council at the time, the councillors helped us get into this, um, which was basically a, a, a hall at the time, which was not used an awful lot in Reginald Murphy Hall, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, that's right. Right, that was that was right. It was kind of a hot little, you know. It was always too hot to rehearse in there because they're airless. And anyway, so they 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 wanted someone to they 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 saw enough. They wanted to activate the place, and they saw us as an opportunity. And they they helped us get in there. I mean, we ended up having to raise all the money, but they certainly, you know, they made the pathway for us. Um, so. Yeah, that was a, and that's an example of an opportunity that just came up um, because, the, you know, the council was trying to make itself look a little bit better in the public's eyes. And that entire council got voted out. <laughs> and, uh, and then what happened is Clever Moore came in and ran a really nice, you know, squeaky clean council uh, without that kind of strange, you know, in bed with developers. A lot of protocol came in and, um, you know, we've hung in there ever since and had a really good relationship with uh, council. But, again, that's been a line because council ultimately serves the community and I've always seen theatre as um, something that has to serve the community. So, you know, I've always felt very aligned with a lot of the, the, the basic council beliefs. Um, the paperwork's terrible. I mean, the amount of, it took two years just to get the plan of management in place to get into the Reginald Murphy Hall to, <laughs> and council were helping us. And then we had to, we did our own DA and all that sort of stuff. I mean, the Eternity Playhouse took five years and the council were building themselves and it was being put through their own, you know, it's just the, the it just takes a lot of time. But, um, yeah, I think, I think um, there's a lot to be said with, you know, for local government and council and, um, working with with them, and we were never a really. We did some community stuff, but definitely Milk Crate Theatre was community based, and Dalai Drama was community based. Um, but then we, you know, we were moving more into professional theatre and independent theatre in particular. Which again, you know, they were they. It was an evolution time too, because the council at that particular point in the early two thousand wasn't interested in what um, one of mainly community stuff. Uh, which we were doing, but then we started to move into, um, you know, more professional theatre and then, you know, with Clover Moore, that, that council changed dramatically and were interested, became interested in, um, you know, a creative kind of landscape. So there's, the stars sort of aligned and 
um, for me, you know, the, in particular, but also it's looking for that that opportunity. And when I was asked, um, I've shown the tabernacle, which is now the Utility Playhouse, I've shown the building, it was completely derelict, leaking like a sieve, it was a tip, uh, hadn't been occupied in 15 years. And um, and the the the, the, the uh, council worker, this, do you think this could become a theatre? Because we're going to we're going to either turn it into an office block, or we could make a theatre out of it. What do you think? And basically, the yes, it's you know, it's the footprint was a you know uh, squarish, which would mean a wider kind of stage. Um, and basically, theatre people can perform in a tent, and it was going to be a lot bigger and better than than our previous theatre. I said yes, and it kind of moved from there. And um, yeah, then it was a long, you know, five year process, which took a lot of patience uh, to negotiate. Well, not negotiate, but to collaborate with council on the design and the work. But again, we were very aligned, you know. Um, there were, you know, at times I, I would bring in an expert. So, for instance, John Bailey from Sydney Festival, who's a buddy of mine, he came to one of our meetings. I was like, I just really was struggling to get the architects and council on board for a more um, democratic kind of auditorium. You know, I wanted a thrust stage uh, and, a you know, the, the seating in a kind of a not quite a semicircle but wrapped around, you know, the front edge wrapped around the stage and rate. Uh, because they were playing a kind of end-on thing in a race stage, and it was very, it was old, you know, it's very old, old school. And John and I, you know, presented to the architects and council, and I, I said, this is much more democratic. This is a more democratic space where the performer is looking straight at the audience, you know, uh, um, uh, and the audience is looking down onto the stage and. Um, you know, it's it's like a, a, a Greek amphitheatre uh, in style. And that that flew, you know, they sort of got on board for that. And let's get rid of the middle aisle because we want everyone to be together, you know, this, this sort of thing. So, yeah. It's a very comfortable space, uh, a very communal 200-seater, isn't it? Uh, yeah, a lot of, yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of work went into that. The architects were terrific and we we're all very much on the same page and um, the original designs, it was going to be concrete and quite utilitarian. They've just come off the back of carriage works. Uh, they've done carriage works, which is, you know, as you know, it's um, you know, pretty utilitarian and cement. Brutalist. <laughs> yeah, well, yes, well, it is. <laughs> And I, I, I said, let's inject some timber into this. Let's get some colour. Let's look at the Spiegel tent as a reference, the original yeah. Spiegel tent. Yeah. And the colour and the, the kind of feeling of inclusiveness and the... Stained glass. Uh, well, yeah, it was already there, you know. So, um, and, and again, that, that, that resonated too with the council. Um, and also, let's do it. Let's go old school a bit. Let's go old school. Not let's not try and modernise this. Let's let's hark back a bit to another era, but give it a kookiness too, you know. So hence all the colour and a bit of bling and the staircase, which is a bit wonky, and um, yeah, those sorts of aspects. Yeah. 
it's one of the city's recent happy stories because it's very hard to imagine that once upon a time there were over 200 theatres and cinemas in Sydney town. Well, yeah, I mean, terrible. The d- yeah. demolition of um, you know, great art houses. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So, so to hear stories like this are, are, are wonderful that, that a council can do that. And, of course, uh, the Theatre Royal has just undergone renovation and um, let's hope the, the Metro and Potts Point can have the same treatment. That would be great. I mean, the bones of it is, are still there. Yeah, mm. yeah, good stuff. Mm. Glenn, is, do you think theatre is a religion? Uh, yeah, without a without a religion, it's kind of a religion without a religion. It's got to, it has to be fairly adaptable and to ch- and, and be prepared to throw out last year's religion and you know some of those kind of you know uh, uh, like you'd probably I think your 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 twenty something um, theatre maker of today would really clash with some of these the sixties and seventies you know your that Australian theatre makers and their kind of rat bag approach plus, you know, which... Larrikinism. Oh, yeah, kind of, yeah. And also, you know, there's a lead edge of misogyny chucked in there. I think, you know, I think that was their time, that was their religion and their rebellion, and as it were, and I think now it's a different era. And often when I hear younger artists talk about some of the old writers it's with a whole lot of disrespect it's a lot of <laughs> and you know to a point understandable where you kind of go mm, yes yeah. they do need to update their beliefs and you know, they need to move you know forward. yeah and have an appreciation of of our elders and what's gone before and um our history our heritage well yeah i like to i like to but i do understand the kind of you know that clash as well too, which is uh, yeah, I get a little bit shocked actually. So when when, uh, um, but then it's understandable. I think you know that this. Yeah. I'm not going to give any examples, but this no, older no. Pr- practitioner might have said this. And I kind of go, yeah, that's a bit shit. It's not good. Yeah. Well, it's all those uh, social and historical and political perspectives all uh, uh, taking play, isn't it? People it is yeah. cr- creating theatre in different times. Well, I think you've got to evolve. And also I think there's time to let go as well. I mean, I really feel that now. Like I just yeah. think, right, let's, it's, it, it is time to let go. Theatre is very much um, a religion, I think, because, you know, the theatre is our temple. That's where we go to go to pray. <laughs> and I think you could say that theatre is as much religion as football is uh, in a state. Oh, definitely. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. Uh, well, it's you know it's it, it can have a real it can be incredibly magical when when it's flying and working and um, you know that, that that there's nothing like it when it when it's on and that connection between audience and someone on stage that's uh, that can be very you know that that can be incredible mm-hmm. yeah. It's a, it's a real battle the arts have had with sport, isn't it? You, the arts aren't given the, the respect that, that is due. Look, I, I liked playing sport, you know, when I was a kid, but um, I can't watch it. I mean, it's just boring. I just, you know, I, I just can't. I can't get into it at all yeah. as, as a, 
you know, so. As a spectator? No, <laughs> I don't get it. <laughs> I just don't get it. It's uh, it's clever. I know they're knocking that ball or hitting whatever they're doing. It's amazing, and I've got an appreciation for that. But yeah, look, I I think um, I think for me, sport does in Australia, in particular, you know, it comes laden with a lot of you know toxic masculinity. Yep. It just does, yep. and still does, and you know, week after week, you read the latest what that some NRL player has done or you think, oh, my God, you know, so thought, grew up with this in the, in the 70s and 80s and they're still bloody doing it. And I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not a, I'm not a, you know, I, I think that's, I, I think it's, yeah, I think it's quite toxic, not the sport culture. Mm. So what were, were you, the artistic influences in your childhood? Did the family go off to the theatre or live music concerts? Um, well, um, it was mainly, I, I was brought up mainly in the Blue Mountains. Um, we had a stint in France for four years because my father was in the Air Force. Oh. Um, so I think it's kind of twofold. My mum is a, is a, uh, a singer, uh, sings uh, leader and opera. You know, she was very, very good, but her nerves just would strike it down no end. But she did do, you know, the odd concert every now and again and um so not that i ever got into opera and i really struggle with it to this day because she'd have it blaring most you know <laughs> most mornings and on the weekend um but she was very encouraging she got me playing music and um she encouraged that side of things and um i got into probably you know my late teens more and more and eventually wanted to, um, you know, wanted to be a professional musician, wanted to go and study at the conservatorium. And I brought that home to my father one day. I'd gone, I'd, I'd actually left school and, um, you know, done a year 12 and I went to, um, I was doing engineering because I just wanted to please my dad at some. Um, Get somebody to fall back on. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that was, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and I just came home one day after I think I'd been at the uni about eight months and I said, Dad, I quit. I'm going to go and be a professional musician, <laughs> which, you know, for an Air Force officer, um, you know, not great news that his son was going to be a musician. So, you know, uh, and then he, he just said, you're not going to make it. I thought, like, good, that's, that's what I need, a, you know, a uh, motivator. And so I studied madly for about a year and then I, you know, with some private teachers in the Blue Mountains and then I got into the conservatorium and then I went to my dad and I said, look, I'm going to be at the conservatorium for the next four years studying music. Can you help us out, you know, with a bit of dough? And he said, you're going to cost this, cost that, cost this. I said, right, I'll do it myself, bugger you. And we didn't talk for two years. Oh, dear. Um, one year of that, we lived in under the same roof. Oh, no. <laughs> Oh. It ended up for two years. Your poor mum. It was, um, oh, God. Well, and so, you know, I eventually moved to Sydney and, and I was teaching. What I used to do is on the weekends I'd teach and that was great money and then I'd play the odd gig as well. And I'd actually lived pretty well through through, cause through college and put myself through. And, um, 
and bit my bit by bit, my dad came around. You know, he was a nice guy. You know, he he he. It was kind of a, quite a creative soul himself, and um, eventually came around. And I went to him my final year, and I said, "My dad, look, my guitar is crap. It's terrible. It's got a hole in it. And can you buy me a new guitar?" This was a lot of branch for him, and I. It was really like you. Here's an opportunity to redeem yourself. Buy the guitar. I need it for the concert. I've got to, I couldn't play my, you know, I needed it for the concert. Otherwise, I was going to borrow it or something. And um, he bought it. And uh, we kind of made up then. And he came to my final concert. He wandered around really inappropriately with a camera filming it, which I thought was quite beautiful. Yep. And um, yeah. So yeah, we, we, and, you know, from then on in, it was, um, you know, we did speak. <laughs> and uh, so yeah, I was a musician for a while, and um, I did some high school teaching because part of my degree was music education, and I really I did enjoy that a lot. I did a couple of years. I taught at Dremoyne Boys High School. Um, I was head of music and the only music teacher there, uh, so that was fun. In, in charge of yourself. <laughs> yeah, and the boys, you know, it was year sevens and eights and nines, and they were terrible. They just behaved like animals. When I turned up on the first day, all the instruments in the storeroom were destroyed, and I thought, oh, my God, what have I got myself into? But, but I, I did find my my way there and, you know, bought a drum kit because I played rock music too, and I, I used that with lessons and start little band. Anyway, I had a, I had a great time there, but eventually I... I was, I'd started doing theatre with um, the Rocks Players. Yep. Do you know the Rocks Players? Is that, that's not uh, Tamarama Rock Surfers. This is a different group. No, no, it's way before that. Right. And it was kind of like, you know, a bit like the new theatre, but a bit more hard-edged and they always did new plays and, you know, it was always a competition for who'd read the, the latest, you know, author. And um, so I started... Um, did some acting there and then also uh, lessons and also was more interested in directing and eventually directed some small shows and then a larger show. And, yeah, so I've, and all the while I was still being a bit of a musician on the side and, well, that was my bread and butter. And, yeah, I got more and more into theatre and then I got a job at Sydney Theatre Company um, as a props buyer and truck driver just to you know, have a look and yep. a good friend of mine worked there. He got me the job and I was there for about two years and I just loved it. It was fascinating. It was really, you know, it was really um, uh, interesting because I went from department to department and Richard Werrett was running the place at the time and he ran it like a Caesar. And <laughs> it was very, <laughs> everyone was afraid of him and uh, he'd often jump in the truck and, he loved getting in the damn truck and I, I dreaded it because he was very aloof and, you know, he didn't talk much and everyone was frightened of him and he'd get in with his boys. Um, he had an enclave of boys. And, <laughs> and uh, The devil wears Prada. <laughs> he was. Oh, they would look like really tough men would sit down at the table with him and they would be quivering. And ordinarily, you know, another director would be directing a show then. The production team would run all over them and tell them what to do and cut down this and cut down that. But when Richard spoke, everyone just shut up. And uh, But he was a really lovely guy. I don't know what, you know, I think it was, I don't know, he just had a presence about him that, uh, 
and he was very talented, extremely talented. Oh, yeah, and one of the country's great theatre makers. He was, yeah, yeah. And people like Brett Shee was working there at the time. He was... Um, Associate? Um, yeah, lit- literary associate at the time. May Britt Alcohol was the other. And I used to borrow plays and do a lot of reading. And then on the side I was doing little bits of directing at the Rocks Players. And, and then, then in the end I thought, oh, I'd really like to start my own company. I'm leaving. <laughs> so I, I quit. And, uh, you know, Michael Lynch was the, the boss at the time. And I, I said, I'll, I'll come back at some point and direct for you and blow your budget for you because the directors were always blowing the budget. And, you know, yeah. at the at the theatre. So um, yeah, so I left with the idea of being a director, but <clears throat> uh, and then I thought, well, you know, I'm going to need some money to start this thing. Uh, and so I gathered some friends around who were professional actors and started a little Dalo Drama, which was a drama school, and that provided the revenue. So uh, uh, you know, the the money we had from that, we put on shows at the Wayside Chapel Theatre, which was, you know, a pretty, dis- it was a disused, it had been burnt out and was quite disused. And we resurrected it in in the early 90s and uh, myself and, you know, a bit of a gaggle of us. Um, it was Matt Stewart, um, Chris Fed, Maury Barlin. Um, you know, they were kind of Western Sydney graduates. Uh, who else was there? Well, uh, anyway, we, we, we resurrected this theatre and it was, um, you know, basically I, I bought some, with our, with our Dalo drama profits and money from the drama school, we bought some equipment, kitted it out and started doing kind of pro-am type plays with a mixture of, you know, people from the drama classes and, you know, teachers would sometimes be in the plays, you know, the professional actors. And uh, we knocked out some shows. The first show we did was Waiting for Godot uh, with an all-female cast, which was shut down after after 12 shows by the Beckett Estate. Yeah, I was going to say so, the Beckett Estate would probably take umbrage with that. <laughs> they did. <laughs> they, felt, they read an article somehow. I don't know. It was kind of the internet, very early days, the internet. and um, But somehow they got a hold of an article from the Sydney Morning Herald, which was about you know, it being an all-female cast, and they shut us down. So then we did a clandestine in a little hall. and we, Yes, it's we interesting. Of- they certainly have their eye on things. I remember there was a production that Neil Armfield directed of Godot at Belvoir and used live musicians in, in the um, production. Uh, and the Beckett Estate came in and said, you can't have live music and oh. uh, made their presence felt. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So how, how was the all-female Godot? Who was in it? It wasn't bad. Um uh, a good friend of mine's uh, uh, now wife, Fiona Sannon, was in it, and she's now uh, she's now a teacher. Uh, uh, and David Jobling directed it. You know, I don't know if you know David Jobling. He was he was teaching for us at the time. Um, uh, who else? Oh, look, there was there was a young guy. He was just this Adonis, beautiful guy, this huge guy. And, you know, he took his shirt off and everyone would just fall on the ground. And he was so humble and beautiful. He was a carpenter. What was his name? He was just gorgeous. He was just a carpenter, really humble guy. I can't remember his name. Uh, look, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about the, the rock opera that you wrote. Uh, 
Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. Well, that was, uh, yeah, that kind of really did get me going. So that was at the conservatorium in my final year. Um, I don't know the what came over me, but um, I was, you do a, re- I was doing my recital at the end of the year, but before that, I thought, let's put on a show. And I, I'd, um, I wrote a rock opera, which was sung from beginning to end, you know, hence opera. It's, you know, it was sung all the way through. I was about an hour and 10. Uh, it was called Leaders. It was a bit terrible. Um, you know, uh, it sounded like The Who and Yes. And, you know, I don't know if you know those old rock yes. rock and The yep. Doors all thrown together. <laughs> A fusion. Um, with, with a bit of Jesus Christ Superstar chucked in there. So <laughs> it, it kind of was a, you know, a mishmash of things. and uh, not that I, they, they were all original music, but, you know, uh, you could hear the influences of, you know, for the young Glenn, Glenn Terry. But uh, And then, you know, got everybody I could, all, you know, from the conservatorium rallied about 20, 25 people. There was, um, you know, cast and dances and so on and the director at the time um who was he just he just he just walked away from us like i can't do this i don't know what to do with this and so i took it on i took it on i had no idea what i was doing but i just had a bit of a natural flair for getting people to kind of work together and cooperate and, and also um and it went okay it went pretty well and a friend of mine designed it and we sort up all the um, piano competition rostrums to make the, the, the which I didn't know at the time, I've, we were let loose into the, you know, and we sort up the rostrums, which I got in trouble for later for the piano competition, We to make our own rostrums. Um, you know, I had projection. Um, uh, yeah, and it was a, like a, and the band, the band was huge. It was about 20-piece band wow. in the pit, and I conducted <laughs> it was a mad affair. And, and orchestrated uh, too, probably. Yeah, I did all the orchestration. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which I really enjoyed doing. And um, but I haven't been back to that kind of you know composition world since I, I got really into the idea of um well that was you know a lot of producing and directing. So that's you know kind of where I wanted to go, uh, as opposed to you know comp- composing. Yeah. yeah. So working down and around the wayside theatre chapel, uh, does that lead to the establishment of Milk Crate Theatre Company? How do you? Uh, how does yeah, that in a way it did. I mean, it was just seemed a bit weird because we'd be doing shows and we'd walk the gauntlet of people sitting outside the the wayside chapel, or we'd stop, you know, stop and have a chat, or we'd have a meal in the front, you know, a, a meal in in the, the with the um, you know the, the patrons and clients there. And I just thought, well, we should be trying to do something. So they'd come and so they come, we'd, we'd they'd come and see the production sometimes. You know, some of the, um, you know, the, the people who uh, they didn't stay at the wayside, but they used the kitchen and they'd hang out there, and um, you know, it was a drop-in centre. So that and um, you know, one of the main social workers would bring people in to see to see the shows, but. Um, we got approached by council, by the City of Sydney, and they said, we, we've got this money and there's an issue with the local, there's a, on, on Burke Street, there's a big residence going up and um, the locals hate it, that the, it's, that the 
Edward Eager Lodge is directly opposite. They have no empathy for the um, local homeless people who use the place. Can you do a show for <laughs> to highlight some of the issues that they're facing and write a play and perform it? And here's $3,000 <laughs> to do it. And um, so, you know, this is the 90s, but still $3,000 wasn't going to go very far. Um, and I basically pitched to them. I said, look, we can take this and what we'll do is we'll do a thing, we'll do some forum theatre, which, you know, I had a book by Augusto Boal. I said, this is fantastic stuff. Why don't we try this? But we'll do our own kind of Aussie version. Um, we put together a drama based around one of the stories that someone tells us, which is about them being homeless. We also invite, do workshops so then we can bring people into the show and the action happens. The audience can stop the action. They can jump in and participate. They can take the place of someone in the show. Um, they can change the show. And it sounds mad, but, and it was, um, and it was a hell of a lot of fun. It was really fun. The, the first time we did it, the actors were terrified. Because we went into the what is the Edward Eagle Lodge, and there's just a lot of people with, you know, drug addictions and all sorts of things and, um, you know, some of them pretty scary uh, to, you know, your, your average you know, middle-class actor. And um, then we were going to perform for them. And then we're going to perform a story and then ask them to get up. But the, the, the first performance was fantastic. We played the show through and then that's what you did. You played the, the, first, you know, the, the performance through and then you do it again and that's when, when it all gets chopped and changed by the, by the audience, led by an MC, you know. And I was directing the show and I was, I was having Gary's, oh, get out there, it'll be fine, it'll be fine. I was thinking, oh, my God, they're going to get killed. <laughs> well, we're all going to get killed because you know. Anyway, but it was such a hit. It was, um, you know, the audience loved it. We, it was amazing the reaction, and it was a show for them, by them, you know, for homeless people, um, and they got to participate. And there was, you know, that it was, it was, and we always did it with a lot of humor. You know, humor featured, um, uh, you know, all the way. It wasn't this hardcore drama, but it there was a, you know. Quite a serious edge to it, but we always lay it in. Well, they brought a lot of the participants brought humor to it, um, you know. So yeah, it was it was really fun. Well, I love doing that. We did that. I directed those for years, and um, yeah, it was it was it was a really joyous, probably one of the best things uh, I've done personally is to do those shows. Yeah. Well, it really speaks to the um, the healing properties of theatre too. I think that um, how, how powerful theatre can be for participants like uh, the folk you're working with. Well, in that moment, we were all happy. You know, everyone was happy. You know, it was just, um, and there was a, a, some food laid on at the end for it. Would be a, quite a feast would be laid on, and it was just a moment to for for to to celebrate. You know being alive and together it was yeah it was and and quite communal yeah and giving voice to those those um the unheard voices uh, that exist in our community well yeah in a way um yeah i mean it's not like any of the residents turned up <laughs> the angry <laughs> residents were across the road but we were preaching to the converted or we were just having a lot of fun with um you know we'd have a good 40 to 50 you know local homeless people 
at the at the at each of the gigs. Um, in the end, I think we just did it for us, really. You know, uh, uh, and and for them, you know, to hear that story. Sometimes the stories, all the stories, some of the stories would be very very powerful. Um, yeah, yeah, it was a yeah good time. I think Milk Crate celebrates about twenty one years at presently. How long were you with the company? About first two or three. Um, uh, no, it started in nineteen ninety. I think we got visited by Council ninety two, and then it incorpor- we in- we sent it off and got it incorporated in two thousand ten. So eight right. years. Yeah. Right. I probably directed the shows for the first four or five years, and then I got heavily involved with critical stages and, um, you know, the theatre and growing the business. And then, you know, other we got a bit of Australia Council money. We got some donations, so we kind of grew it. Well, let's talk about critical stages. You, you're obviously a great believer in that theatre should should reach as wide an audience as possible. You know, establishing critical stages, ensuring that. Um, People in in far off regional centres could have the same access as uh, as urban dwellers. Mm. Well, if the Australian Council had its way, we wouldn't have got anywhere. They would they kind of when we put it on the table, they laughed at us. They said, really? "There's no way regional presenters are going to buy that hard ass, you know, tough so called." I mean, it was that, it wasn't that tough the stuff we were doing? They're just scripted plays, but they said they're not going to they're not going to take it. And. Um, so uh, what I did is I've, I actually got on the road. Uh, uh, I got on the road with Sean Party, who um, was our venue tech at the time, also had done a lot of touring. He was a stage manager. And we visited pretty much all the major presenters in Australia in their venues, and we spruiked the program. We said, here's a bunch of shows. You've got to buy one of these and get on board. And that's how we... We, we, we kicked it up by going to the theatres in the regions and seeing the theatres because we're both theatre nerds. We just loved visiting these places and seeing all the venues. And it's also some of beautiful and amazing theatres, um, you know, all over the country. And just kooky, strange, you know, historic places in, in places like Bingra. And, um, you know, it was, it was amazing to... to, to, to to visit and then to talk, take an interest in their theatre and to take an interest in their program and say, well, we think this might be good, this might work for you, or we do actually walk away if we thought, you know, okay, sure, it doesn't really suit. But, and that's how we kicked that off. That was, you know, it was... And then we went back to the Australia Council and we said, okay, we just did a whole bunch of New South Wales touring, New South Wales government got behind uh, and kicked in a bit of money for the running costs and then some of the early tours as well. Um, and the Australia Council went, oh, wow, that's unbelievable. And they'd heard about it and they'd heard about a spruiking and they funded it for another three years. So the thing got off the ground that way, you know. But in terms of, I mean, our, our main motivator was to try and, um, you know, cr- try and create some work for us artists because they've done this show let's say in a little theater bankrolled themselves with their credit card you know this was providing professional work so some of these tours were monsters it was we did dealer's choice which was a show that had been at the old fitzroy we picked that up and we set around the country for 21 weeks of touring all paid 
Wow. And a team of uh, six guys on the road, uh, you know, in the show itself. And then, you know, things like Bangers and Ashes, Drew Fairley and Kate Smith, we sent them around, you know, all tiny little, tiny little venues in regional um, New South Wales and made a circuit of small, tiny places, you know, RSLs that would just convert into a, um, a you know, their back room into a, a performance space. So we kind of created a community circuit in New South Wales and then a kind of bigger circuit. Um, I think the very last one we did was... Uh, six dance lessons in six weeks or something you know it was kind of um and that tour that was about 18 18 weeks around the country um yeah some of the tours were monsters and funded by playing australia yeah um and in 2009 we cut that loose because we were headed towards the eternity playhouse and we were looking towards that and creating a professional model so you know that by the time we let milk crate go it was turning over about two million dollars a year wow wow mm. extraordinary extraordinary critical stages with still with us stronger than ever and and allowing doorways for for artists to uh, reach those regional audiences well that's chris bendel's work because yeah. you know he um it's it was it's not an easy gig you know to to it wasn't an easy gig, you know, to, to get those presenters on board in the first place. I think Chris has really taken it to the next level and done amazing things with it. So Darlinghurst uh, uh, seems to be the perfect suburb for a, a theatre, um, knowing its colourful history, you know, the, the razor gangs of Tilly Divine to uh, the glitterati of Oxford Street and home to uh, much of the LGBTQI representation. Um, did it feel like the perfect location to you, the, the Burton Street Baptist Tabernacle Church? Um, well, strangely, my family are a little bit from that area. My mum was brought up around there and she kind of knew some of those petty crims um, when she was a little girl and I think her dad was a bit of a petty crim, not a nice fella <laughs> uh, not at all, uh, quite a horrid character. Um, and, you know, she came from a dirt poor background um, and she sort of escaped. Her, her, her stepmom won the lottery and they moved to Burwood. They bought a house in Burwood. That's where she met my dad. It was, the, you know, in the Air Force a few doors down type thing. And so she escaped that kind of, you know, the petty crim Darlinghurst thing. But uh, somehow myself and my sister and brother we all kind of gravitated there we spent our 20s and 30s pretty much living in that area and um yeah it's it's some it's it's an area we felt i guess with our time in france we felt you know it was quite cosmopolitan it was a place where of openness my brother's gay um you know my sister's a, a singer uh, you know i was interested in the arts and all sorts of things so and it just to the Blue Mountains was quite um, redneck at the time, and um, you know homophobic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, um, you know, sport was high on the agenda. Nothing against sport, but uh, but it was, uh, and it wasn't the Blue Mountains was not the place to open your mind, and the city was, and certainly Darlinghurst was a place that opened your mind. It was, uh, you know, with all the artists and all the personalities, all the people, and. It was, you know, in the 80s, 
eighties and nineties. It was, you know, it was still still peopled with really interesting characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. the name of the of the theatre, the Eternity, obviously has great connections to a gentleman who who worked there. How did you come up with the name Eternity? Was that your idea? No, not really. I wanted to call it the Burton Street Theatre, so people could find it. <laughs> Yeah, well, it worked yeah, for Belvoir. No, yeah. Street, Nimrod. Anyway, but um, and also the, yeah, I was against it because I thought, yeah, oh, the reviewers are going to pick up on that. That show is like an eternity. <laughs> you know, when was it going to end? It was eternal. I, just, I spent an eternity at the eternity last night. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I wasn't, I wasn't none too happy with it, but it turned out that, it was an idea of Larry Galbraith, who works at the City of Sydney, and he put the idea in the mayor's mind, and she thought, yeah, it's fantastic. But Arthur Stace had his epiphany, uh, who was the Eternity Man, um, and he wrote Eternity on Sydney Streets, you know, up to a million times, and it went out to outlying suburbs even. But he had his epiphany at that, that the Baptist church and um, the story goes that he, um, he was a World War I vet and uh, he was quite alcoholic and, um, you know, on his last legs, as it were, and he, um, uh, and that, 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 that church used to run a soup kitchen downstairs, mostly men, a lot of vets from return from the war, you know, obviously traumatised and, and the priest would... Um, you know, he'd give his sermon to people, you know, men homeless. And uh, Arthur heard this, this. He was at one of these, you know, uh, lunches and, um, fit, you know, one of the one of the meals. And uh, this, he gave the this, the Reverend gave his sermon, which ended with eternity. You're all going to eternity, eternity, eternity. Just remember that. And um, from that was when the light went on for him, and he started writing it in, you know in that kind of lovely hand, um, which, and the story goes, I don't know, that he was kind of nearly illiterate or, and that he could suddenly do this. You know, that's that's how, how it went. But the Reverend, it was, it, was, it was about 20 years or so later that the, the Reverend at um, the Burton Street Tabernacles found him on the sidewalk out the front doing it in the dead of night. And... Um, asked Arthur if he would um, be willing to come out, as it were, because the church needed, needed more followers and he had a good story and so he agreed to be photographed and the Sydney Morning Herald took that photo of him, you know, riding it on the footpath. Yeah. Well, I think it's a terrific name. It's uh, merging, you know, one of Sydney's great iconic characters with um, hopefully a theatre that's going to be around for, for quite a while to come. Oh, I hope so. It's, it's, you know, given that it's in council hands, I think that's fantastic because they'll, they'll take care of it. You know, it's a council-owned uh, building. It's not a, uh, you know, it's, it, um, and in, in essence, the, that, 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 those properties are owned by the state as well. So it's kind of, it, it'll be protected. What do you think you'll miss most about Darlinghurst Theatre Company, Glenn? <laughs> you're the founding CAO. You're the you're the the daddy of the company, really. 
Uh, probably the people. I think it's, you know, the current team are amazing. They're very collegiate and um, it's so nice to see because, you know, so often I, you know, it took a long time to assemble a team that was so collegiate and collaborative and on board for the, for the greater good and the mission of the company, what we want to do. Um, you know, often arts workers can be um, hired guns, you know, they do their thing, they come and go. Uh, but saying that, I mean, I've had a great run with all the people we've worked with over the years. And um, so, yeah, I'd say the staff. Yeah, I miss right. the staff. And the, the current board's fantastic too. So, um, but yeah, I can always go back and see a show. Of course you can. And look, it's that time of the year. I'm, I'm sure they'll be announcing their, their 2022 season sometime very soon. Uh, so uh, listeners can look out for uh, that in their letterboxes and in the media. Uh, some exciting shows for 2022. Uh, so all the best for your, um, I think you've got about five months left, Glenn. So um, thank you for all that you've uh, given institution-wise to, uh, to Australia, to Sydney with Milk Crate and Darlow Drama and the Darlinghurst Theatre Company and, of course, Critical Stages. And um, may your retirement uh, be all that it can be um, and, and without sport. <laughs> I don't like sport. I just don't watch it. <laughs> thank you, Peter. And thank you for the lovely rap. And, uh, um, yeah, thank you very much for your interest. Stages wishes Glenn all the best for his retirement. Something tells me he won't be sitting idle for too long. Thanks, Glenn, too, for your outstanding contribution to the arts in New South Wales. Thanks for joining us today. It's always a joy to have your company. I'm Peter Ayers. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe, and I'll catch you next time.